Today's episode of The Doctor's Companion is brought to you by InStockTrades.com and DCBService.com. everybody and welcome to another episode of the doctor's companion i'm scott corelli and i'm matt smith but not that matt smith and we are from mindrobber.net the home site of mindrobber productions where we talk about all of the things on podcasts uh we talk about doctor who on this podcast the doctor's companion and we talked about everything that isn't doctor who and sometimes doctor who on the mind robbers which is our flagship mothership big ship podcast uh <laughs> you like our shows we kind of ask that you review them um I mean, if you're 015 Slappy 015, uh, I half-heartedly encourage you to leave a review. Uh, but if you're people like uh, Jacob01033 and Trenton Smith, uh, yeah, people like you guys should leave reviews all the time because they were nice and they made me smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 015 Slappy 015, not so much, not so much. I mean, I like that you think I'm an expert of the classic series, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I also am not a child. Um, so... Th- there we go. I didn't read the review back, but I hope that's what he said. Anyways, uh, so yeah, that's us. If you have any questions about Doctor Who or want to bring up a Doctor Who topic that we'll answer on the show, uh, email them to us, podcast at mindrobber.net, uh, or start a discussion on the website, um, which you should do because you watch this, because both of these are really good and they're on Netflix and you really have no excuse. Uh, it'll be on the website, mindrobber.net, this post, leave a comment, tell us what you thought. It's all good. Uh, so yeah, this week we're talking about the Pyramids of Mars, we'll start off with that, and then we'll go into, uh, Time of Angels, Flesh and Stone, which is our continue of the Series 5 rewatch, mm-hmm. uh, stuff to look, stuff to look forward to on the other side of the break. Um, but first I guess we should talk about the Pyramids of Mars. Yeah, uh, so, uh, this is really good, um... <laughs> I I love Pyramids of Mars. <laughs> so good. Yeah, it's uh it's really excellent. Yeah. <laughs> really really outstanding. Uh, uh Pyramids of Mars. Okay. So Pyramids of Mars is uh the third story in Tom Baker's second season of Doctor Who. For those keeping score at home, the first 3 seasons of Tom Baker's Doctor Who are um uh big on gothic horror and classic monsters. This is the mm. this is the run of the show that features um uh, mummies and a takeoff on Jekyll and Hyde and a ripoff of um, The Thing from Another World, which you might know as John Carpenter's The Thing, and uh, evil plants and, uh, you know, mummies, which is what this story is. Um, it was originally written by, I think it was, oh, bollocks. I just Louis Greifer. Uh, Greifer, yeah. Louis Greifer, <laughs> who um, Robert Holmes is this? Is this the story where he wrote it and then turned it in and then ran away and no one could find him? Uh, no, oh. that was Ark in Space. That was Ark in Space. Oh, okay, that was Ark in Space <laughs> and and other ones. But he, what he did was, um, 
Greifer came up with this idea. Well, Holmes approached Greifer because Greifer was this, or Griefer, I don't know, whatever, that's his name, uh, approached this guy and said, hey, uh, I like your work, you want to do a Doctor Who? And the guy was like, sure. Guy had no idea how to do Doctor Who. <laughs> no clue. And <laughs> basically just wrote this storyline, and the storyline involved um, the colonization of the moon and special grain that would grow on the moon and two Egyptian gods that were going to try and disintegrate the moon and... Uh, a companion named Jane, which is close, but no cigar. And, and shocking, because Sarah Jane had clearly been around for two seasons before this. And Robert Holmes was like, you know, I don't really like this. Because um, <laughs> it's not really enough, like, mummies and stuff. It, it doesn't really work. And it was a unit adventure, and there was the Brigadier, and they were thinking about killing off the Brigadier. And so this guy basically went in and wrote... He got commissioned anyways. They were like, we're going to try and rework this. And they tried to rework it, and he basically came up with the same sort of idea with evil grain on Mars and and astronauts in a space probe. And Robert Holmes was like, this isn't what I, what I want. And so this guy, and much like John Lucarotti did for Ark in Space, just went, that's great, but um, I said that I would go teach in Israel, so I'm going to go do that. And so he <laughs> runs off to Israel, handing Robert Holmes a script that Robert Holmes straight up does not like, called The Pyramids of Mars. And Robert Holmes, after about five months, realizes that he's not going to make any headway, scraps just about everything from the uh, from the original idea, keeps the idea of mummies, um, which he was really into, mummies and uh, a space god. Uh, but he removed one of them, removed basically all of them except for the one evil one, um, set it in 1911, which he felt was a good send-up for classic monster movies, uh, removed unit, removed everything, and basically just turned this thing in. Um, so he kind of wrote it himself. And it was so, it's so Robert Holmes that Louis Griefer, who whose name could have been on the project, like went, you know what, nah, just take my name off this project. <laughs> and Robert Holmes, because he was the script editor on the show, was not allowed to be credited with episodes because it was against BBC policy. So they put the name Stephen Harris on, and Philip Hinchcliffe was just like, you know what, Robert Holmes kind of wrote this whole thing, and he wrote it really quickly, and it's really, really good. So can the BBC uh, allow Robert Holmes to write two stories, which is why Holmes writes Deadly Assassin of Talons, Wayne Chang, in the next season. Um, uh-huh. Yes, yes, and that's why he's like the sole writer on those. Um, History between- making. Yes, it's uh, it's kind of a it's kind of a thing, and it's also like a really popular story. It's one of those stories that is, it was an instant classic when it aired. It's a, still a classic today. It's like one of the most touted stories in this era. Which I mean, it's a super popular era. But um, this is the one of the ones that really rises to the top. And uh, watching it, it's not really that surprise or not hard to see why. Um, it's a it's, hell of a story. It's so good. Like <laughs> this is one of those stories where. Uh, well, we'll talk about it in just a second. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, there's 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 a lot to love, and uh, I can see why uh, it would be a classic. But before we continue talking about it, I want to remind everyone that today's episode is brought to you by InStockTrades.com, where you can purchase our book of the month, which is not severed. Uh, <laughs> as, wow, it's been a while since we've done this. Man. As the script suggests. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's uh, oh, oh, bollocks. It's Criminal, the deluxe edition by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. There it is. It's available for like twenty four ninety nine or something. It's like a steal, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is 40% off the suggested, or maybe it's thirty twenty nine ninety nine. It's thirty percent. It's forty percent off the suggested retail price of like 50 bucks. So. Yeah. <laughs> I did that off the top of my head. <laughs> uh, this is what happens when the script isn't there. Um, 
Whoops. Yeah. But you should go to InStock Trades every week. Here, here's factual information. Uh, you can go to InStock Trades every week, every Wednesday. The front page is updated with new deals of the week uh, that are new releases that have just come out on that Wednesday. Uh, and you can get them for 50% off. So you should do that. I think the new uh, the new volume of Superman Earth 1, I think, just came out. Uh, yeah, Superman yeah. Earth 1, Volume 2. Uh, so if you want like a new, fresh take on uh, Superman, go check that out because it's sort of like a new origin. I mean, Volume 1 is a new origin. Volume 2 is, I'm assuming, a continuation from there. Um, yeah, it's something. Something. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, anyway, but yeah, st- so, so check there every Wednesday, uh, for the deals of the week that are, they're 50% off the cover price. Um, and it's only that first week and then they go back to like the f- 35 to 40% off. Uh, and remember all orders over $50 get free shipping. So buy often and buy in quantity. <laughs> and save in quality <laughs> and also buy severed because why not <laughs> yeah why not buy severed you should buy severed <laughs> i vote yes thanks to yes. stocktrades.com yes uh okay so the pyramids mars is so good uh <laughs> <laughs> like uh here's the thing about pyramids of mars um it is I could see someone watching this having only seen New Who and just being like sort of like rolling their eyes and just be like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is – it's cheesy and I don't know what the hell these mummy things are supposed to be because they don't look like mummies and it's just – it, it's old and, and dumb. But like it's a thing where you kind of – this is like a perfect example of of – if you really pay attention and you really watch uh, a classic Who story, a good classic Who story, you can see just how good it actually is, um, mm-hmm. and and you can you can look past the cheesy stuff. Like there are stories, uh, in fact, there are stories that take place uh, like uh, two or three years after this one. Where you can't really look past the poor production values. Um, and the reason is because the story isn't any good either. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's in, in the case of these, uh, especially the, the, the Hinchcliffe, Hinchcliffe Holmes era of Doctor Who, like you watch this and you're just like, man, if this had a budget, people would be losing their minds over mm-hmm. this story. Like it's so good. I mean, you basically uh you have like a space god and like you have that awesome first cliffhanger where you think oh the villain's showing up and then it ends up being the like right-hand man of the villain. Like that is awesome. Oh yeah. That is oh, yeah. such a good cliffhanger. Oh yeah. No, it's that is one of my favorite cliffhangers ever. And like I remember watching this the first time and knowing that the uh, like the Holmes sort of um, uh, staple where Holmes has these Holmes has this thing where he creates horrifically disfigured villains who are really omnipotent and trapped in a place and they're trying to escape. It's the storyline to Deadly Assassin. It's the storyline to Talons of Wang Chiang. It's the storyline to Time Warrior. And these villains will have proxies who are 
more human than they are, and they will be the avatar in the world. So when you watch it for the first time and you know about Robert Holmes, you look at Ibrahim Nahim and you go, oh, this guy's just the avatar, and here comes the big bad guy. And when Ibrahim Nahim is killed in the last minute of the first episode, I remember the first time I saw it went, oh, oh, damn. Oh, oh no! Like, I don't know where this is going at all. Like, it was so, like, it was so off-putting. Yeah. It's, 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 it's amazing. It's such an amazing cliffhanger. Oh, it's, it's so, so good. good. It's so good. Not, not only is that great, but then you get to see Sarah Jane do her impersonation of a, of a Pertwee face. <laughs> at the end of, at the end of part two. So awesome. <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> Uh, I remember I watched that and I'm just like, ah, uh, I know where she learned that from. <laughs> Legacy. <laughs> Legacy. Legacy. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it, and it's, it's funny, uh, that you mentioned like the unit, uh, the unit uh, involvement in the earlier drafts because they talk about unit at the beginning of the, of the, of the story. Uh, yes. And, and they talk about like coming back to earth to, uh, to, I guess, visit or help out with something, um, mm-hmm. which I'm assuming well, they were is, called. Was that the next story? Uh, was sort it? of, I guess they were. Co- the idea is at the beginning of this episode, they were called back to earth by the brigadier and they were knocked off kilter by Su- the rise of Sutek um, okay. and knocked from the, from the, from the late seventies, early eighties into 1911. Um, and that's the idea. So, so, and, and that's the thing about where they are is they're in this big giant old school mansion, which is actually um, the future home of Unit HQ. It's just this this priory or or home basically burns that burns down at the end of the at the end of the story is the is the birth of Unit HQ, which is what this story kind of dials into. But you don't need to know all that. Like it's just like that's one of those cool things where it's, it easily slips under the cracks and you mm. kind of don't notice. Um, it's just something cool to point out. Uh, so, but yeah, no, I could gush all over this story, like, <laughs> and so, and so, I think we should. Um, uh, I, I think the one of the things that I gotta point out, uh, first and foremost, not just Robert Holmes because we won't, we won't have to talk about Robert Holmes, but I gotta throw a big shout out to Patty Russell, who's the director mm-hmm. of this story. Um, and she's done a, she did three other Doctor Who stories and all of them are excellent. Um, she did the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve, which is one of my favorite William Hartnell stories that doesn't exist. Um, (laughs) and, uh, she did the invasion of the dinosaurs and she did horror of Fang Rock, which if you haven't seen it is incredible. Um, that makes a lot of sense. I see a lot of that in this. Yeah. But there's a there's a thing to her. First of all, it's, it's a female director, which is really cool. But she, what she does is, um, there, there's a real, and we'll see it also in Angels too. But there's a there's a real kinetic vibe to her style that really works on this. And from what I read up on this story, Holmes did need some help pulling it together, so he went to Hinchcliffe and Russell, and Russell threw in a bunch of ideas. Um, so this is a story that is also really close to her and her vision, but. It just like her direction on this is so phenomenal, and and it's even the stuff where um I love the part where uh, where Marcus Scarman is shot in the back, and he basically the the smoke like sucks back into him, and then he walks towards the window. That's a reverse shot. Like that whole shot was shot in reverse, and then played back in reverse. If that makes sense. Um, so like he walks backwards from the window, and then gets shot and turns around. Um, oh, it's, and it's so cool. 
Oh, it's awesome. And you, and even looking at it again, it's so smooth. Like they had to really rehearse it and make it look really, really good. Um, and it's just, oh, it's so great. It's so, so great. And I love, I love her. And I'm sad that she didn't direct more because after Horror of Fang Rock, she was like, no more. Cause this was hell to work on. <laughs> but this is like, I, this is her crowning achievement. As far as I'm concerned, this is just a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. Oh yeah. So, so good. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and I just I love the way that this is structured. Like this is this is really well structured, um, mm-hmm. which is not always the case uh, with 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 uh, classic Who stuff. Um, <laughs> not always the case. Not always the case. But the best ones are always the ones that escalate uh, in each part. And this one in particular, like especially I, I like the stories where parts two and three sort of mesh together, but parts one and four, if you just look at parts one and four, you're like, how did we go from there to there? Mm-hmm. Those are the best ones. Uh, mm-hmm. And this does it perfectly. Yes. Oh, yes, so absolutely. good. So absolutely. good. Because, yeah, uh, parts two and three, they really do just feel like one long episode. Um, mm-hmm. And that's obvious because of the cliffhanger, which is really just uh, we hit 25 minutes. Right, um, exactly. Which I, is honestly the only pr- like negative thing I have to say about this. Right, um, right. Like, outrightly negative. But, you know, it, it's a thing where it's like, uh, would you rather that or would you rather them shoehorn uh, a better cliffhanger in, you know, that they yeah. that they then have to spend time getting out of in the next mm-hmm. episode. So. I'm fine with it. And we got yeah. Sarah Jane Pertwee face. So it's good. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 I love, uh, I, I, God, I love episode four. <laughs> like part four of this is so good. It's just the doctor and Sarah Jane in a pyramid labyrinth solving riddles. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that, there was one point where, like, there's a point where Sarah Jane gets trapped in this in this container thing, and to get her out, the doctor has to solve this riddle where these like two mummies show up, and this the the uh, voice is just like, yeah, so there's two buttons, one of them kills her, the other one uh, will 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 release her, and then we've got two mummies. And you're gonna, you can ask one of them a question. One of them is the true mummy and one of them is the false mummy. So, like, one of them will tell you the, uh, the truth and the other one will lie. And, <laughs> and he, like, so you have to – with those tools, you have to figure out which button is the real button. I'm, like, the solution that he comes up with, I actually had to pause it and, like, work it out in my brain because I was just like, does that work? <laughs> like I actually paused it to think about it because uh, it just I man riddles like that I love I just yeah I, it's really really cool um, yeah so I freaking I God I love this story <laughs> well what I love about part four in particular is that you're right that it builds really really well um, and I think that we'll see that also in angels but w- what I love about it and this is something that I think. Um, because I've read a, I've read some criticism of this story where people say, "Oh, Sutek is literally just sitting there the whole time, and there's no stakes because Sutek is separate from the Doctor." And and I think that like, what makes Sutek threatening as a villain, besides the fact that he's played really well by Gabriel Wolf, like the like the Hinchcliffe Holmes era does such a good job of bringing in um, uh, people who can just carry 
uh, a character with just their voice. Um, you see it with Peter Pratt in uh, Deadly Assassin, Michael Spice, who plays um, uh, 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 oh, uh, Magnus Greel and the voice of Morbius in uh, Talons and Morbius, respectively. And then you have Gabriel Wolf here, and Gabriel Wolf is so it's such a like it's such a it's such a deliciously silky sinister voice that I just I love to pieces. It's it's you can't I can't stop listening to it when it's around. It's so good. It's so 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 good. But uh, what what makes it really interesting to me is that they leave the Doctor away from Sutek for the whole story, up till the very end of episode three. And what makes the episode three cliffhanger so interesting is that it brings the Doctor face-to-face with Satek, and the Doctor is literally just knocked out of commission ten seconds later. Like, ten seconds later, the Doctor is in his thrall, and you get, with episode four, they just build on that, where Satek's like, I'm gonna rip you apart atom by atom. (laughs) Yeah, like, I don't, I can't understand, like, how is that not a threat? Like, yeah, he's just mm-hmm. sitting the whole story, but then by the time the doctor goes to him, you're like, oh, there's a reason. He, he's sitting because he doesn't have to get up. That's yeah. – <laughs> like, that's – like, that's – that makes an awesome villain. Like, who, who – yeah. who, what what idiot has – like, thinks that that's a problem? I don't – Yeah. And it's also, like, it keeps them away from capture recapture because the idea oh, is, that, like – that. Well, I mean, the idea is that if the Doctor and Sarah Jane went up against Sutek, they'd be dead. If they went up against Marcus Scarman, they'd be dead. And yes, Marcus Scarman is a presence around, but he doesn't really share any scenes with the Doctor until episode four. Um, and, like, I love that they that Holmes knows the strength of this character and keeps them away from him so that... I guess you lose some tension by the Doctor not facing off face-to-face, but at the same time, it it creates such danger. The Doctor is so scared all through this story that something really bad is going on. Um, and it and it just it heightens the stakes, because, you know, Tom Baker's unflappable, and here he's, like, really just like, guys, we're kind of screwed right now. Do you not understand? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, and then, my favorite moment of it, like, there's a lot of great moments in this, but my favorite moment is the moment where they, they get to the TARDIS, and Sarah Jane is like, so, why don't we just go? Because <laughs> we know they fail, because I'm from 1980, and everything's fine. Everything's hunky-dory, so why do we need to stay? And he's just like, oh, Yes, of course, you're right. And then he shuts the door, and they go to 1980, and he opens the doors again, and it's just a wasteland. (laughs) And he's like, that's why we have to save the day. That's why we always have to save the day. And I'm just like, oh, that's so good. Yeah, that was was Philip Hinchcliffe's idea. And one of those things where it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm more than happy to give Holmes a lot of credit for most things, but like, I always forget that Hinchcliffe was as big an influence on this show as Holmes was, um, especially in this time. Like, and that that nineteen eighty stuff is so good. Like, it's so uh, like, it's just so it's so dark. It is, it, and it's it's <laughs> such a uh, like a precursor to New Who. Like, that's such that's a scene that you could literally just take and 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 just implant into any episode of, of New Who. Yep. Uh, especially during the David Tennant stuff, which, like, this episode in particular, and I mean, I've seen a lot of Tom Baker, not a majority yet, but a lot, 
Well, there is a lot of it. There so. is a lot of Tom Baker. Uh, but I, I've seen a lot of Tom Baker, and I've never really thought this before, but there's something about his performance in this episode in particular that's very – feels feels like very David Tennant-ish um, in a – you know, obviously it seems like this was a favorite episode of David Tennant's and he modeled his doctor, his performance off this episode a lot Um, Mm -hmm. because there's, there's a lot in here where I was like, wow, that's a, that's a, that's a 10 mannerism. That's a 10 mannerism. That's something Mm -hmm. 10 would do. That's it's so weird. It's so weird. Yeah. And I think that it's also like, it's not just Tom Baker too, is like, this is one of those stories where it's like, the doctor is just acting like the doctor. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no person to it. Like, yeah, Tom Baker's very uh, not sour, but there's a there's a thing in in his um in his second season, this season that we're dealing with right now, um season thirteen, where he is this um he's this very snappy, very angry guy. Um, he doesn't like he like I mean the first shot of this is incredible the shot of not the first shot of this but the first shot of him just the him in the hat and coat in the TARDIS slowly looking up and the pullback is just so iconic like it's so it's so fracking iconic in less than five minutes this story is just like like Russell's first shot of him is so confident that she's directing something really special um that Tom Baker, like he, he has this anger to him. He has this, um, alien aloofness, but at the same time, like, it's just like, this is why he's, he's a lot of people's favorite doctors. Like, this is why he's that guy. Um, and I can't really complain about that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I can, I can see why he, uh, why, how Tom Baker got so much mileage out of these first three seasons. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, he's really good in them. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, this is when he was his heart and his mind was completely in this role, yes. um, which is not the case later on. <laughs> <laughs> um, l- later on, he had a lot of alcohol in the role. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but these early these early seasons, him and Sarah Jane especially, yep. um, are just so good. They're really so good. good. They're really, really, really good. Um, and and that's like, I mean, this is like, this is really one of the crowning gems of that. Um, I think something else that I really need to mention, just because it's really weird but also really cool, the house that they shoot at, because um, when they're inside the halls, they're um, they're on sets in, uh, you know, at, at the BBC. But when they shot on location, the house that they shot at, I don't know if you saw, but it's uh, Mick Jagger's house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at the time that they were shooting this, they actually this house belonged to Mick, ja- Mick Jagger. Um, he wasn't around while they were shooting it. His parents were living in the house, but this is his house that they're shooting at. So Mick Jagger—that's how much money Mick Jagger has. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back in the mid seventies. Um, <laughs> that's nutty. Yeah, it's kind of awesome. Um, <laughs> but I mean, every—I mean, everything about this, like the organ music. Like I traditionally don't like organ music. Anytime Robert Holmes wants to put organ music in a story, it is so good. <laughs> it is just, mm. it's so, it's so tonally right. And I think that that's one of the things about this is like, uh, the, this story and Talons is the same way. Um, the best Doctor Who stories are the ones that you lose yourself in and don't want to end um, because they capture a tone, they capture an aesthetic that you really 
want to stay in. And the thing about this, and it struck me the first time I watched this, because when I saw this the first time, this floored me. Like, this absolutely floored me. Um, and I was just like, wow, that was the best Doctor Who story I think I've ever seen. Um, it, 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 it's just, I don't want to leave it. Every time I'm here, I'm just like, why can't all stories be like this? Why can't they all be set in 1911 and have like a vaguely, you know, like there's no real sexier time than like super pulpy 1910s, 20s, like adventure storytelling. And Holmes just dials into that in spades um, with everything that he does. And I... Oh, I love it. I love it to pieces. When's our next home story? Uh, that's a while. I'll go look. I'll look right now. You okay. keep talking. Keep going. Yeah, it, it just uh, there's 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 nothing quite like a good home story. Like I I know that we're not watching caves until uh, the end. I think I'm gonna. I think next year, because um, caves is our last episode. Uh, of of this podcast um and whenever we get to it uh like five years from now um (laughs) but uh i think next year i think i kind of want to like to to celebrate the 50th anniversary because who knows if uh i'm going to feel satisfied with whatever uh bbc decides to do with it Mm -hmm. um i think i'm gonna i'm gonna make sort of like a best of list uh, to watch, um, by myself, uh, <laughs> and, and, and try and, and I, cause I, like, I really want to watch caves again, but I, I feel like, I don't know, like I, I, it needs to be an event in order to watch it. Yeah. That's me, man. That's me. You know? Yeah. Every um, time I think about it, I'm like, man, I could watch that right now, but I just want to like, I just want to make it special. Open yeah. a bottle of wine, get some filet mignon. And then just watch some people just shooting each other for like a hundred <laughs> minutes. Um, the next, the next Robert Holmes story is the Crotons, and we're not talking about it for a while. Okay, <laughs> a, a really long while. But if you count the if you count the stuff he script edited, we have um, I think we have Robots of Death coming up soon. So I mean, oh okay, That's not something. soon. I mean, we still have a whole nother Davison to go before we get there. But oh okay, well, but that's yeah. still uh, you know. It's still aesthetic, and it's still the era, which is... Yeah. I mean, this whole era might as well have been written by Robert Holmes, excepting Revenge of the Cybermen, I guess. Because <laughs> everything else was so heavily written by him and rewritten by him, to the point where writers were asking to be taken off of... Their names taken off of scripts because they just didn't feel like it was right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, the, the Robert Holmes... Yeah, no, no, I know what you mean, and... I feel like a best of list would basically be every story from uh, Planet of the Spiders all the way to Horror of Fang Rock. So, <laughs> <laughs> accepting Android Invasion. And even then, Android Invasion really just sucks because it's stuck between this and Brain of Morbius. So, any story that's stuck between them is screwed. And any story that's written by Terry Nation is screwed. So, it's double screwed. Um, so. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, uh, well, I mean, you know, and throw caves on that list and Time Warrior, Time Warrior, Carnival of Monsters. um, I need to watch Mind Robber again. Oh my god, I'm doing that for the blog, and I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) War Games, uh, Tomb of the Cybermen, Power of the Daleks, um, all sorts of. There's all sorts of stuff. Dalek Mm. Invasion of Earth because. Sometimes you just want to laugh. Um, I need like, yeah, I think I need, I need to do like an ultimate best of list. 
Yeah. And, I, and I think I'll, I'll I'll jam through that next next year. Yeah. Um, That'd be fun, dude. That'd be so uh, fun. Fifty years. It's a lot. That's a long time. That's a lot. Uh, yeah. And uh, and Pyramids of Mars is one of the best in those fifty years. Mm-hmm. So without a doubt. Uh, you guys, if you can, if you're, if you're new who watchers and, and you haven't really gotten into classic who go in knowing, go in knowing that the effects are going to be cheesy and just, if you go in there and you set your expectations properly, this story should blow them away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd recommend watching a couple of things and then, like, slapping this on. Like, I watched this relatively early on in my um, Doctor Who, like, watching career. And I was I was just – I was so gobsmacked. And this was, like, the reigning champion for a long time. Um, before you got your master's? Uh, yeah, before I got my master's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, this was about – this was about the 50th story I watched or so. Um, so okay, I mean, so it, that's like uh, – that's like your sophomore year? Yeah, it's like a third of the way through. It's like a third of the way through. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it was like, I think I watched this City of Death, Remembrance of the Daleks, and Trial of a Time Lord all in the span of, like, like a week and a half. It was Jeepers. pretty, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, and I don't, I don't regret it. Also, one thing I, I still have to mention about this, and this is something that Robert Holmes does that I really love, and he does it in caves, so spoilers for caves, I suppose, but I love the... The massive body count that is in this story. I think no one walks away from this story except the Doctor and Sarah Jane. You're not wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like th- it's like this horror of Fang Rock and Caves of Androzani are the are like the bloodbathiest Doctor Who stories ever. Like <laughs> Patty Russell, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess she just uh, she really likes it. No, everyone dies in horror of Fang Rock, and then like Caves of Androzani. Literally, the only two people to make it out of that story are the the women. Every other person, including the Doctor, dies. Like just, and I'm just like, oh, I love that. I love that so much. And Robert Holmes. I mean, like this is why, and this is why. He's the best. Like, this story is why he's the best. The dialogue is incredible. The story is exciting. It is thrilling. It's brutal. It's funny. It's 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 intense. And it just escalates so well. No one structures Doctor Who like Robert Holmes does. Um, yeah. And, he just you know, gets it. He just he, gets it. Yeah. No one – he just so – he's so dialed into the, to the premise, to every – just everything about it. And – it's one of those things where it's like it just makes you want like a really good mummy movie that isn't directed by Steven Summers. Um, <laughs> well, we are getting another mummy movie. I know. Well, bring it, bring it, bring it. <laughs> Whether it'll be good or not. Is, yeah. Well, uh, I'll still have uh, this, and I can always I can always watch it over and over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, Sarah Jane with a rifle, which is. Uh. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I swear to God, every time I watch a classic story with Sarah Jane, my crush on her just gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, there's a, there's a reason for that. It's because she's really, really, really good. Oh, my God. She's so good. Yeah. And Love even her. like even her and the solution at the end of this when she's like – I mean, not even – I just guess I want to just talk about the solution. But no, she's really good in all of this. Like just everything – like when she walks out in the Victoria dress, when she is – um, when she's, you know, being just – a great companion, like a great companion. This lady oh, is so good. So good. Yeah. So and, good. and I love the solution, which is like, the, and that's what I love about the fourth episode is that the doctor, 
is losing for the whole fourth episode. He is taken captive by Sutek. He is he is um, essentially killed and then brought back. And then behind him, behind him, behind him. Then the Eye of Horus is destroyed, and the Doctor has to race back to the TARDIS. And the only reason he boots Sutek is because he races the TARDIS and can make it back to Earth faster than a radio wave can. Which is such a, a an incredibly clever, elegant solution to a very difficult problem. Um, that I I just I love it. I love it so much um it's just great i forgot how much i loved it i just love it love it love it love it excellent so excellent (laughs) uh all right so we're going to talk about uh time of angels flesh and stone in just a second before we do want to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by dcbservice.com dcbs the site that lets you order all your monthly comic book statues action figures uh anything can get at your local comic book shop you can pre-order from dcbservice.com uh this month the uh new marvel now uh bundle i think it's uh i forget how many titles it is this month but it's a lot uh it's it's basically every uh marvel relaunch book um it is 29 issues wow uh, 29 books uh, 29, uh, Marvel comics for fifty two thirty five, which is 50% off the retail price. If you bought all of those at cover price from your local comic book shop, they would be a hundred and four seventy one. Wow. Uh, so you're paying half that. So that's exciting. Um, also, uh, there's a new book coming from dark horse. Uh, it's called star Wars. Say what? Yeah. And for those of you who are just like, so a Star Wars comic, there's lots of those. There are, but there has never, ever been a a Star Wars comic book that was just called Star Wars. Uh, This is just Star Wars, number one. And it's it's a continuation of uh, the original series. uh, And, you know, it may or may not end up being a uh, bridge from Return of the Jedi to whatever Episode 7 ends up being. Which, by the <laughs> way, if you want to hear us talk about that and our thoughts on that whole Disney LucasArts buyout Star Wars Episode 7 thing, uh, tune in to The Mind Robbers, this this next episode of The Mind Robbers, because uh, we're going to talk about it there. Yeah. Um, also, Absolute Blackest Night. Oh, that's a thing that? that's happening apparently. Yeah, so uh, if you uh if you liked Blackest Night, feel if you free. like Blackest Night, yeah. Uh it's a big absolute hardcover, oversized hardcover in a slipcase. Uh retail price of it is 99.99, but you can pre-order it from DCB service at 49.99, which uh based solely on uh all of the stuff that you get in it, um because it's not just the Blackest Night uh, stuff like I, I don't think it's just the Blackest Night miniseries. I think, I think it's Green Lantern and Green Lantern Core as well. Wow! So that's big. Yeah, sounds <laughs> like man, it's a lot of stuff. Um, so that's a lot of stuff. Uh, for for a hundred bucks, let alone fifty. Um, mm-hmm. so uh, go check out that stuff. Lots of stuff. Uh, to to try out and and get uh from dcbservice dot com. So go pre order it and uh, check it out. Check it out. <laughs> yes. Check it out. Uh, all right. So uh, continuing our series five rewatch. 
uh, we bring you episodes four and five of series five, Time of Angels and Flesh and Stone, uh, the Angel two-parter from series five. Uh, also, the return of River Song, which is the first thing that I want to talk about. Um, <laughs> after we talk about how, because it's kind of complainy. Uh, so I'll actually, yeah, I'll save that. Um, because people, people hear us hate on Moffat enough. Um, uh, so this story is really good, like really good. Um, and it makes me miss this Moffat. I don't know where he went. (laughs) I don't know where you know, went. it's funny. I thought the same exact thing. I was while, like, while "Where is this it. guy? <laughs> what happened, man?" I have no, I have no idea. Well, I, I think it's a couple of things. The first thing, well, I, I guess you wanted to save River Song, right? I heard that right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll save River Song. Um, the first thing I'll notice about this is that this is absolutely a two-part story of Doctor Who, and if Moffat had made this a one-part story, it would be Asylum of the Daleks. Like, well, uh, that's ex- exactly what it would be, and it would be not as good. It would be yeah. not as good. Because um, that's the thing, man. The, the, the Asylum of the Daleks, great concept. Really crushed the execution. Yeah. Uh, in that, like, literally crushed. Like, if it had time time to breathe, that would have been a phenomenal two part opener. Yeah, uh, but but instead, it got it got crushed because he turned it into a one parter, and it just eh. uh huh. And you didn't get enough time to do stuff with it. Like the mm-hmm. thing about this is that. Yes, I think it could move faster a little bit because when you when you play it back in your head, not as much happens in it as I think you think happens. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, it, I mean, it's a very simple story. More than not, it's a very simple story. The Doctor and his companions crash on a planet, join up with some Marines, and infiltrate a cavern, and then a spaceship. That's the whole episode. Um, but what makes it work is that Moffat really puts a lot of time into letting moments breathe, into letting sequences lie, into letting... into getting um, just cool stuff happening. I mean, this... Um, the, 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 the Amy Pond... Uh, TV sequence with the angel coming out of the TV. Uh, cut. It's uh, cut. Like in a, in a one part version of this, that is gone. It's completely gone. It's um, so good. Oh, it's arguably the best part of the first episode. It is arguably the best part of the first episode. And the first episode has so many good parts. Um, it is it is a set piece that to this day has people I know who watch it like screaming, even though they've seen it before. It's intense like nothing else. It is so awesome and so terrifying and so everything you want from an angel story everything um and there was nothing like that in angels take manhattan huh wonder why i didn't like it um so (laughs) but like that's and that's the thing is like all the stuff the stuff where amy gets her hands stuck um and and turned to stone that's gone the stuff where um uh, they notice the crack on the wall everything with the crack on the wall is is gone which i have a I have a big problem with the crack in the wall, but I'll save that for later because it's the one thing I have to complain about this. Um, I have two things, and the crack in the wall is one of them. I'll be interested to see if we have the same complaint. Yeah. Well, it's a complaint that I've had since I first watched this story. Like, it is a complaint that I've had since the very beginning and left a very sour taste in my mouth. But, you know, the thing about it is, like, yeah, it's this this whole two-parter is just a high-octane 
thrill ride, run and gun in the vein of Earthshock, which we're going to talk about next week. Um, like it reminds me of Earthshock. It's got Space Marines, and it's basically just really fast, and it just runs. Like it hits the ground running, and it does not stop until it's over. And I love that. Um, I just I, and 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 the thing is that like Mavit says, all right, you want to run and gun? I'll do it in one episode. And it's like no 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 no. You need the space to make it move. You need the space to not to give me something to hold on to in the moments where you're not running around. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, that's what really stands out to me about this story is that it just, it's a bummer that Moffat says two parters are a waste of time and money because they don't do what they're intended to do, which is to save money. It's like, well, no, but two parters make this show great. Like two parters give you time to flesh things out and to give space where you haven't been using space. Um, mm-hmm. And they're really necessary. They're really necessary. And I can tell at watching this why he stopped writing them, because this was not easy to write. Like, it's a very, very, very hard thing to write. Despite its simple premise, it's very complex. There's a lot of moving pieces to it. Um, and that's a, <laughs> that's a bummer, because he doesn't need to try this hard anymore. He already proved that he could do it, so he's moving on to something that's easier. Um, it's a bummer. It's a bummer. It's such a bummer. Um... <laughs> No, but there's there's things in this where I'm just like, man, where did that meticulous guy go? Like, remember when Moffat was meticulous? Remember yes. when there was a scene in in Flesh and Stone <laughs> that didn't make sense until the finale? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Where did that guy go? Mm-hmm. And you watch it the first time, you're like, that's a weird scene. But when you every time you watch it afterwards, you're like, how did I not pick on, up on this the first time? Like, yeah. Oh, How did I know? So it's, good. Especially because, like, when they cut away from Amy and the doctor in that scene where he's wearing his jacket and you don't, and you, like, you don't notice that he's wearing the jacket the first time, they cut across to the doctor talking to River and, um, and, uh, the, the, the cleric dude. I'm just gonna call him Sir Jorah because he's from Game of Thrones and I love him on Game of Thrones. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> walking with Sir Jorah and, uh, and River and, you, or Octavia, he's he's uh, he's cleric Octavius or something. Um, th- there's no mention that he stayed behind. There's no mention that you know he wasn't with them the whole time, and it's not like he's running to catch up. Like he's been with them, and it's like when you watch it, you're like, how did I not see that? Like how did I just not get that? Especially because it's so tonally weird. The conversation it feels mm-hmm. like a different episode. It's 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 madness. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. Uh, um, and that was just that was that guy. That's yeah. Ma- the Moffat we used to have on this show before the success went to his head and he got lazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a <sighs> and it's a real bummer because, like, can you imagine if all of this, like, cross-temporal stuff was actually done throughout seasons but done in ways where you wouldn't realize it? Like, the Doctor shows up in a scene and plays a role and he's kind of checked out emotionally in ways that he hasn't been for the rest of the story. You're like, mm-hmm. that was weird. And then you find out later that, oh, that was just him at a different point in time. Like, mm-hmm. just like you could do that. You could do that. So it's not so easily, but you could do that. So, so clearly. And like, I love that that just speaks to the vision. Like there is a vision for the show that goes beyond. Let's just make it big and actiony that I love about season five. And that's what keeps me coming back to season five, because there's such a vision here. There's such a vision of the future. There's a vision of tone. There's a vision of um, where we are, where we're going. I love, I, and, and that's why season five holds up. Like, that's why we're finding that season five is, uh, it's still a really good season of Doctor Who. Because um, the, the competence is here. The competence is here. It's just not here later, which is the bummer. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so 
<laughs> I want to I want to talk about River Song because I think my problem with this is and it's not a thing that I noticed when I watched it pre season 6 and 7. My problem with River Song now, knowing everything that I know, is that I feel like Moffat had no idea that, like, what he wanted River to be at the end of series four. And then, <laughs> and then he decided and made her a completely different character. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is weird and awkward and off-putting, and I don't like it. Uh, yeah, and it makes it makes it so that it makes little to no sense that season four River is the way that she is. Yep, because she's not this River. She's not cocky, over the top adventurer River. Uh, and I don't, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. I can't reconcile the two characters in my mind. Um, and I know a lot of a lot of defenders will be like, "Oh, well, it hasn't happened yet." It's like, no, this was the second to last time that she saw the doctor was this time, or third to last. This is the tail end. This is very tail end. Very tail end. Because she knows not to kiss him, so it's tail end. Yes. So I, I don't know. Yeah, it, I it, it that's that's my problem. It's 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 not so much an issue with like. I don't. It's just an issue with weird continuity that I'm not, and 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 not even not even like, like fact like where does this happen in a timeline like not even that because that's not as important to me as anything else. It's just like it doesn't. She's not the same character. Mm-hmm. She's just not emotionally, psychologically. She's totally different than where she was. Um, yeah. Based yeah. on and and I and I think that it did strike me. The same way, like, when I watched this the first time. I mean, it's much more jarring now, especially if you go back and watch Silence in the Library, where she's much more mellow than she is here. Um, She's really, she's really all over the place. I mean, and she still has good moments, like the part where where Octavius turns to her and goes, do you trust him? And she says, I trust him. Are you sure? And she's like, I absolutely trust him. Like, it's just like, there's great moments in here. But I mean... Even going beyond that, there is no indication here, none, that River Song is Amy Pond's daughter. In a way where it's like, that should be bubbling under the surface constantly. And I think that it's, I think that it's crazy. Like, fine, he didn't know. He should have. Especially because Amy Pond was called Amy Pond because it was possible that she, that she was the mother of River Song. Like, that was the purpose of the name. I I just I can't it's it's impossible to reconcile and it's impossible to like like when Amy's getting her brain fried by the angel River is compassionate but no more so compassionate than a friend would be not in the way like a daughter would be watching her mother essentially die from a brain tumor mm-hmm. um and that's that's really shocking like River should be despondent like she should be like losing her fracking mind at what's going on and it's yep. it's it's just it's just it's it's unfortunate it's so not unfortunate. to mention the whole confusion with the alternate timeline thing <laughs> and how all that works how all that like shakes together uh i just don't i don't really get that um i just don't i don't 
I don't understand how that all comes together. Like it all, it's all fine in season five, but then once you start doing this stuff in season six, it stops making sense. Mm-hmm. And like we talk about on, I think it's the mind robbers. You can't fix continuity. Like you can't fix it. Like you just have to kind of roll with it. And yeah. the whole thing is such a model, like such a model. Like this is episode four and five. So there were like, there were another eight episodes, then 14 episodes of so 27 so 30 episodes later, it is completely unintelligible what happened with her character. Completely. Because yeah. um, in Angels Take Manhattan, they mention, oh, the Doctor never exists, so I'm out of prison. It's like, but, you know, she was in prison in this episode, and this is an older version of River, so I'm not really sure how that works. And Or is that the older version? Is that older than this? See, I don't understand. But if it is the And then it's an alternate universe, I guess, and she visited an alternate universe now? That doesn't... I don't understand. My brain hurts. It it, it really hurts. It hurts more than it needs to. And, like, because even then, like, they're really... Like, the Doctor and River are really affectionate in Angels May Take Manhattan. And if River is older, then she knows better than to tell the Doctor that they're married. And if she's younger, then she would be much more all over him and less you know, not in the storm cage or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it, it doesn't make sense. And I mean, I know that that's pin- mincing parsing continuity, but at the same time, because River's character is so completely tied to her continuity, there is nothing else to her character, as Moffat has clearly stated through what he has written through the rest of the story, or his stories. Um, it just makes this whole thing just a real mess. Like and I think River mess. is a perfect example, like a perfect example of uh of a comparison like, like between something like lost and this where like the one thing that that people complain about with lost is like oh we, we, there were all these questions and they didn't answer hardly any of them uh like you know bs uh, River is the case where, yeah, there are a lot of questions, but you didn't need to answer any of them because that's the whole point of her character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe he should have just left them a mystery because as soon as he tied up all of those loose ends, it's made continuity not make sense. But if he had just left it open, if we had just not seen... The little girl regenerate into the black girl who regenerated into River. If we had just not seen that progression, we would have been fine because mm-hmm. we could have we we could have just said, "Oh, uh, River can regenerate," so that makes sense. So now we can have River, you know, till the end of time, and it's fine. Because we can say that this random per- this random woman is River and this random actress is River. And it's okay because we can reconcile it all in the mysterious continuity of River Song. And it's fine. But as soon as you show us every step in the continuity, there are no more holes, which make it makes it more confusing by answering the questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and it's also, I mean, I'd, I'd push it even one step further where it's like, if you make a character, and this is the problem with Lost versus this show, um, specifically, the, the, the reason that I love Lost is because Lost was more interested in the emotional realism, or not emotional realism, but the emotional reality of the people who were in that show. Um, to the, to the bitter, bitter end, it was all about those characters and, um, what Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse thought those characters needed and about how they were broken and needed fixing the questions were not interesting to them and they were interesting to other people and then people hated the show because they never answered the questions but like 
and we say it time and time again, emotional core is what drives stories. It's what drives the narratives that we watch. Questions do not drive that. Stories that are around to answer questions are not stories. They are essays. They are um, message board answers. And the problem with River Song is that she starts out as this beautifully emotional character. And there's those moments of beautiful emotion. The there's a first time for everything and a last is a beautiful emotional Ugh. moment. I know. I know. It, it hurts to say now. But once you make River Song into a checklist which, I mean, I think I've said that before, where she becomes a checklist of continuity questions and answers that need answering, it's not even that you're answering them, you're literally stripping the character of her emotional core because you're saying, this is what's important about this character. And it's like, no, what's important about this character is that she will forever be experiencing a man who um, is remembering less and less of her. That is... That is insane like that is so beautiful and that is such a you can build a television series around that let alone a couple seasons of a television series like that is a movie it is a series of novels it is everything you could want what you can't do is say and here's her mother and here's how she learned to fly the tardis and this is when she got married and this is how she got in the storm cage and this is how she killed the doctor none of those things are interesting none of those things are the stuff that makes stories work. And did we get how she learned the TARDIS? How did, how did yeah. The TARDIS happen? taught her in, Le- in uh, let's kill Hitler. That was a, that was, that was one of the, uh, it was oh. a big day for river song and uh, let's kill Hitler. So like, God, I hate that. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the funny thing about this joke is like, you can already see, like you can almost watch like the slow car crash of her character because of all the things that Moffat throws into this episode. And I mean, it's hardly terrible. Like I think that river song, if you completely ignore what happens later, this is very enjoyable on its own in terms of sure. river song. But the problem is that you hear all the questions and now you know the answers and you're just like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> every time you hear one of the questions, you're just like, ugh. Yeah. And it's, and it's almost like, I wish that he had done the, um, the next time you're going to see me is the Pandorica, which gives us something to look forward to rather than, you're going to find out who I am very soon. There's a total, those are totally different things. One thing is a, an adventure that they're going to go on. The other is a question that needs answering. And the idea that this question needs answering speaks poorly to the focus of the show. Like, let's focus on having adventures and answering them ancillarily. And Big Finish is having that problem right now with a trilogy that they're doing. They're doing a trilogy that is um, set across 100 years, and each story takes place like in one day like the first story takes place on one day and the next story takes place 30 days late 30 years later and the problem with that is when you do a story like that you have to remember that your goal in telling a story is not to explain the mythology that you're dealing with the the idea is to deal with an emotion or a theme that you're dealing with and it's a story that writers fall into all the time it's why movies suck nowadays but um you have to be answering a like a, a, a thematic question rather than a plot question because plot questions are uninteresting and and that's I mean that's that's why this story that's why this story at the very end fails to me because of the cracks specifically because the cracks deal the cracks are a whole new problem that are un, that are unintelligible to the rest of the show um, and it's 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 uh, it's really unfortunate. Yeah. Okay. So the cracks in the wall. Uh, the crack. The, the the crack is. 
the crack is a problem for me because in this episode, and it's not so much about the crack itself as it is about how the crack works, I guess, or how they set up the way that it works here. Hmm. Um, which is that, uh, people walk it, walk into the crack. They disappear from existence. Uh, and, and, and no one remembers them except for Amy, because as the doctor explains, oh, well, you're a part of time travel now. So like you're outside of the crack, so you can remember people. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Until your boyfriend does it. And then you're going to forget him. (laughs) What? Yeah, that's weird. (laughs) How does that work? I don't, I don't know. We can talk about that later, I suppose, but, um, I know what you mean. I know what you the, well, but this is the this is the uh, I, I wouldn't have thought about it later if I hadn't heard the reasoning why she was remembering the soldiers here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've... what? Especially because that becomes a real focus point in the finale. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe when we get there, they'll explain it a little bit better. Because I remember that the doctor said. I, maybe I remember the doctor giving a reason, but I don't remember completely. Um, okay. Well, well, anyway, what are you, what's your problem with we'll the cracks? My problem with the cracks is that they are the easy solution to the fact that Moffat has no idea how to get rid of the Weeping Angels. Um, <laughs> and I know that, like, one of the things I like about this the second part specifically in retrospect and i've i've always hated how moffat got rid of the weeping angels i think it's such a cop out especially because the solution in blink is so clever like the mm-hmm. the they're all looking at each other solution is wonderful um looking at this and they 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 say it a bunch of times which i think moffat thinks is a way of allowing the viewer time to to say that oh I knew that this was going to happen but the idea that the doctor saves the day by grabbing onto a rail just as the mo- just at the second that the gravity on the ship completely fails and all the angels tumble into the crack I hate that solution um I think it's such a terrible solution because it's so easy and thematically irrelevant to everything else that we've been through um and I just I I I hate it I think it's so I think it's so ridiculous yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> and I've always hated that. Like, and I, like, I just, I think that, I mean, I know that, I know that Moffat really went up a, 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 a creek with this story, and, like, really, it almost makes the crack feel like an easy out for the rest of the, for the, for this whole episode, because it is introduced in the second episode and becomes the solution to the problem. But I think that, like, it's something where I watched it the first time, I was like, really? That's your solution? Like, that's your solution is there's an answer there's there's just a collapse of gravity and the thing falls like it just it just it's so false to me it feels so 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 false to me and i hate it um there's one of my least favorite things that moffat's ever done <laughs> just because it's just it, I, i've watched it a number of times and i've never felt good about it in my life mm-hmm. um and I, it does it, it sort of uh i don't know like there's gotta be a, a better way to have done that i don't know yeah, no, I'm sure there is. It's just like you can tell, you can almost tell that Moffat's really burnt out by the time he gets to the end. Like you can kind of tell that he is. Um and that's I mean it, it happens, I guess, but it really should like it, it just there should have been a better solution. And it's really just like it it because it's the ending, it just leaves a real sour taste in my mouth. Um cuz it just it doesn't doesn't work. It you almost need to get the doctor to trick the angels to go in there, but you can't trick a, like 
a hundred thousand angels to go. Into I well, I almost feel like it should have had something to do with uh, the whole image of an angel becomes an angel thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like the solution should have had something to do with that because sure. nothing really became of that. Mm-hmm. And then the ending came out of nowhere. So I, I feel like to reconcile the whole thing uh, that. The ending, I don't know what it would have been, but yeah. I feel like it should have involved that in some way. Mm-hmm. Well, because it would have given Amy something to do. And I know that people at the time would have really complained about it because Amy's quote unquote saved the day in Beast Below and she saved the day in Victory of the Daleks. And here we are in Angels and she's saving the day again. But I mean, it does like Amy getting the angel in her head really knocks her out of commission for the whole story. Um, I mean, she's really good in the first episode, and then the second episode she kind of doesn't do anything and falls into a damsel sort of position. And even then, the angel coming out of her head only happens because of the deus ex machina crack in the wall. Um, Mm -hmm. And, like, like that, so that's your solution. Like, because the angel never existed, so it's no longer in your head. It's like, yeah, but... It just like it's just like those two things just really feel like a super cop out where it's like you had mm-hmm. no solution you you clearly had no solution and you uh, didn't know what to do with it. Um, that's a bummer. Like it's a real bummer. Um, I think that it would have been really cool if they somehow had figured out a way to make Amy like part angel or something. But you know, none of that. None of that. Um. <laughs> also, I don't like that we get to see the angels move. That's a little thing. Yeah, I, I'm I'm in the I'm on the same I'm on the same boat with you there. Um because what makes the angels scary is that you never see them move. Um Well, we shouldn't see them move. Like they only move when you're not looking at them. I'm looking at them. Mm-hmm. So I shouldn't be watching them move and like, oh I but you're not there. Yeah, no, I I but I am. I'm the audience. I am mm-hmm. the camera. Yeah. That's it just, I don't know. It well, bugs me. It's funny because I can see it working on paper. Like, I see that Moffat writes it and he says, an angel is looking away from Amy, and then its head turns. Like, on paper, it works really well. Unfortunately, because the angels are so static and you never see them move, it just, it, it feels really it feels really false. I think that, like, I liked it the first time, I guess. I thought the first time was like... All right, interesting choice. But every time since then, it's like, hmm, shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't have. I also don't like it because it's not – It's it's see, it's a thing. Man, Moffat is really awful at this. It's a <laughs> – it's it's the it's, – it's answering a question I, I don't want the answer to. Like mm-hmm. I – by not knowing how an angel moved, I had it in my mind the way they moved, which is very, very quickly. But the whole thing is you don't see it. So when they move really slowly, it totally ruins it for me. Yeah. Totally ruins it. Yeah. And they're not as scary anymore. Now yeah. they're just like, you know, Michael Myers or something. Yeah. I just Well, and and I agree. I mean, the the thing that the way that I see angels moving, like to get into my headspace, I suppose, is that when I think of an angel moving, I think of just like hearing the flutter of wings and seeing something out of the corner of your eye and looking and then there's it's moved like which is mm-hmm. like i mean it's impossible to do that on on television to make it effective because mm-hmm. it's such a it's such an imaginative thing i mean i'm sure that, that someone could do it and i'd be like yeah okay but like it's so much creepier in my he- in my head especially considering blink you hear flapping um but it is it is it is not you're right. It's not a very it's not a very good decision. And even like the angels in the clearing sequence, like 
angels break through angels are breaking their own rules here and i'm willing to give it a pass because everything else in this is so good um regarding the angels like i'm almost willing to give it a completely free pass but uh, when they're in the when they're in the clearing and all looking back there is some there are some angels getting uh get- getting stuck there and i don't know why they're all stuck not moving like it doesn't it's it's something that's there just for for drama for excitement um and it doesn't really hold i think so (sighs) it's a bummer that said that said compare the angels here to the angels in angels take manhattan moffat really does some cool stuff with the angels no he does and i think the problem is that uh, Blink is the introduction of the villain, so he can just do, like, the minimalist, creepy stuff with them. And then he was like, well, but what if the angels were low on power? What would that be like? Uh, and, and so they were, they were really hungry, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, what would that be like? And so then we get this two-parter. And then with Angels Take Manhattan, it's just like... What if the angels were at full power and were just, you know, Gluttons. regular? Gluttons. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and there were baby angels. What if there were those? <laughs> yeah, that's not as uh, – it's not as interesting. It's not yeah. as interesting. It's just that he ran out of interesting – like the angels take Manhattan is just like it, – it is now – it has turned the angels into the Daleks and it's just another Dalek story. Yeah. You know? We need, we need someone like David Whittaker to come in and just like – Ontario Nation, the angels, <laughs> you know, like kind of to do something new and different with them or evil of the Daleks or something like, ah, 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 perfect. Here it is. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, example. Like you're, you're totally right. Stephen Moffat is the Terry nation of the angels because blink is like his Daleks and flesh and stone time of angels is like his, his, uh, his Dalek invasion of earth. And then everything that he did after that sucked until somebody else did it. Well, I don't know. That means that Angels Take Manhattan is the chase, and I think that the chase is more fun than Angels Take Manhattan, even though it's a huge mess. Um, <laughs> that said, that means that uh, t- that uh, t- going by that logic, Stephen Moffat's next Angel story is uh, The Angel's Master Plan, which uh, I'm in for. I'm in for that. I'll see what that is. <laughs> I'll see what that is. I'm in. I'm in. Twelve episodes long. It's a whole goddamn season of television, and oh it'll my be... Gosh. <laughs> Um, what if he? What if he leaves the show with his Angels Master Plan, <laughs> and it's the last season, and it's just angels all the time, and it's just like no, no, no. It not only is it angels all the time, but you find out that the entire his entire run was being masterminded by the angels. The angels are the silence. <laughs> <laughs> And, and Moffat's the- just somewhere, just going, angels, angels, <laughs> angels. <laughs> <laughs> what they need is a silent angel is what they need. Like, they need a silent, uh. like, when is that going to happen? Like, a, like an angel with a silent head. Like, they should just do that, I think. Um, oh, my God. But no, I love all the mythology stuff, and it's really, really well thought out. And it's not even the stuff with the um, with with the tape. It's the stuff where it's like, uh, the image of an angel itself becomes itself an angel is a terrifying concept. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because I think um, 
who was it? Philip Sandifer, who was a guy who I really love. Um, he uh, he has TARDIS Eruditorum. His entry on the Mind Robber actually talks about it very briefly, where he says, the thing about angels that makes them scary is that the image of an angel becomes itself an angel, which means that angels were actually born out of the imagination of people. Someone thought of an angel, kept the image, and became an angel. And that is the birth. That is how angels were birthed. Like, which is the most crazy idea. Um, yeah. See? It, that's what it should have... Oh, man. <laughs> That's how it should have ended or something. I yeah. don't know. Like, no. I just... Uh, yeah, no, it's 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 got its problems. That, that makes the ending frustrating. Yeah, well, and, and with good reason. I think it should. But, like, all the stuff like this... I mean, I think that Blink is scary. This is scarier, honestly. And not just the, not just the tape sequence, but the sequence when they're in the caves. The stuff with the two-headed statues. Where, like, once you remember what the two-headed... Sta- that they're supposed to be two-headed statues, you go, Oh my god, they're idiots. And that Moffat is dropping the science all the time. Where he just... They mention two heads so many times while you're looking at a statue. Like, and it's one of those things where it's like, you don't notice it. It's, it's why Moffat can be so good at this sort of mystery storytelling. This idea that you don't question the statue because the way the statue looks is how statues are supposed to look like that's so brilliant like that's so so smart so when they when the doctor sees that they don't have two heads it takes you a minute to catch on because you don't see anything wrong with the statue it's got one head it's supposed to have one head um and that's god that's so brilliant that's so 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 brilliant um and I love, I love that. I love the chase through the cor- through the corridors, and I love, I love the cliffhanger. I think the cliffhanger is so phenomenally well built too, to the point where I was like yeah. screaming at the television this time, where I saw that where he just fires the gunshot, the source of light explodes, and you're just like, ah, no! Like I just, yeah, I screamed the first time, I screamed this time, and I've seen it like four <laughs> times between then. It's such a phenomenal cliffhanger. What kills me though about that cliffhanger is that cliffhanger is single handedly responsible for a lot of uh, Doctor Who fans who quit at David Tennant because they saw the trailer for Series Five and they're like, the Doctor doesn't use guns, <laughs> and I'm like, I've got a Centauran hunt that begs to differ. <laughs> <laughs> or any story written by Eric Sayward, cyanide. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, two doctors. Doctor kills a dude with cyanide. Really weird. Um, <laughs> that is weird. Yeah, not very good. Not very good. Um, but but that cliffhanger. I mean, and I, uh, to be fair, there is that point where he says, "Trust me, I'm the doctor," and then fires the gun. Where you're just like, you, I mean, you should have trusted him a little bit, a little bit to not to not do that. But it still makes. Such an effective cliffhanger. Like, the, oh, yeah. Oh, God, it's so good. It's one of those things where it's like, I need to know what happens next right now. And I remember watching it the first time and just being like, God damn it, I need the second episode. Yeah. Like, I just, I need it. I need it right now. I need it. Yeah. Um, I haven't felt that way since the end of, uh, of, Pandorica. uh, Pandorica. what? Pandorica, right? No, no, no. Since the end of, um, the silence two-parter with with the little girl regenerating in the alley. Oh, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. That was the last. That was the last end of a of a Doctor Who episode where it was like, ah, <laughs> that was the last time that I screamed at a Doctor Who episode. And here I thought you were going to say Impossible Astronaut, and I was like, no, that that cliffhanger sucks. It's like a terrible cliffhanger. Oh no no no, <laughs> no not that one. The one um, after. 
<laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, no, this is like, oh gosh. It's one of those things where it's like, Moffat understands, like, what's the worst thing that could happen in this situation right now? The lights go out. Like, that's so smart. Like, it's just so, it's so yeah. smart. And that's the place that you need to be. And it's why Pyramids Part 3 is really effective. Because, like, what's the worst thing that could happen right now? The Doctor is completely at the mercy of the evil godlike villain that he can't stop. Like, mm-hmm. that's... Nice. Man, that's that's just that's the epitome of good storytelling is yep. when you say and and I mean, granted, <laughs> hey, you know what? Uh, I'll I'll give Moffat the bad cop out ending because the only reason he had to use the bad cop out ending is because he was doing he was using good storytelling to get there, and then he <laughs> couldn't escape. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's uh, you know like you kind of have to give him the out because yeah. no I, I, and I agree I, that's one of the things that I've come to is just like yeah he has gone up he went so far up the creek of I can't get out of this situation that he had to just write a cop out ending yeah and, I mean it's I mean it's a cop out ending I don't like it but at the same time it gets you to such an interesting place that it's mm-hmm. almost worth it. Like it's almost yeah. completely worth it. And Credit where credits agree. do, you know? Yeah. Like oh, absolutely. Guy, he didn't pull any punches in this. Mhm. Uh well, he what? Yeah. Go, no, I was I was going to I was going to talk about something else. Go go. Oh. On. Yeah. yeah, no, he just he didn't pull any punches in this and that's mm-hmm. that's that's good storytelling. Like I love when a writer right gets to a situation and then it's just like Okay, so what is the worst possible thing that could happen? We're going to do that. Yeah. Um and I, that's that's good storytelling. That's what you got to do. Yep. That's what that's what you got to do because that's how you surprise people because no one ever expects the worst thing. Yeah. And look at and look at all of the Davies cliffhangers and even Pandora opens for that matter. Utopia. Ugh. Utopia. What's the cliffhanger to Utopia? The master has stolen the TARDIS, the doctor Jack and uh, Martha are stuck at the end of the universe with a whole bunch of mutants about to come in and eat them alive. There's so no out. awesome. What's the ending to uh, Sound of Drums? The Doctor has been turned into an old man. The, he is at completely at the mercy of the Master. And the Master has just exterminated one tenth of the Earth's population. Martha Jones is on her own. Jack is in custody. Crap. Doomsday. What's like army of ghosts? The Cybermen have completely taken over the world, and now there's four Daleks on the loose. Yeah, like, no, it's it's ins- like it is yeah. always worst possible case scenario. Yep. That's that's that is a that's good storytelling. Yep. That's and it's yep. always surprising. That's the secret to surprising your audience. Do the worst thing possible because I guarantee you, we're not expecting whatever the worst thing is. Yep, absolutely not. And that's, like, when I start, like, constructing stuff, when I think about writing Doctor Who, it's like, what is the worst thing I could possibly do in a story? Oh, at the end of episode one, you set off a nuclear bomb. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, and that's that's the thing. That's, like, that makes you – it's so invigorating. It's so invigorating because, like, it's not the the cliffhanger you expect. And, I mean, for those not knowing what we're talking about, we're talking about Big Finish's Protect and Survive, which came out a couple months ago. And if you haven't listened to it, you – really should um but it's just like the end of part one hex ace and um and two random civilians are trapped in the basement of a house that is within the proximity of a nuclear weapon and the nuclear weapon goes off and it's just just like oh i wasn't i wasn't expecting that to happen (laughs) yeah oh it's awesome (laughs) yeah it's great and that's why and that's why i love the angel cliffhanger is just because it's like 
and and it's 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 fist pumpy and oh crap at the same time the doctor's speech at the end is so wonderful like it's so mm-hmm. so good um, oh that's the other thing i wanted to talk about the doctor yes how about let's talk about him because uh this is my doctor right oh here. yeah <laughs> dude i meant like i i i don't think i realized how much the how much matt smith had changed Mm-hmm. Uh, until watching this, because watching this, this being his, I think this was his first story, right? His first, uh, this is the one that came first out of the gate. Yeah, so this is the first time he's ever playing the Doctor, and he is charming and cocky and funny and intelligent and intense and, and serious. Ah, oh, he's so good. He's yep. so good. Yeah, not a cat in the hat in sight. <laughs> No, no quips about horses being transgender. None of that. Ugh. Like none of that. And I think that that's the thing. And like that's why I really like that these are paired together because you know Matt Smith is a is a is a doctor who's really I've kind of kind of fallen from grace from both of us. And Tom Tom Baker is a doctor who has never. I mean, I he, I've come around to him, but he's never been my favorite doctor. Like these are two remarkable showings for two doctors who I think have um have some very weaker sides and like. This is just like this is so it's not just that he's the 11th doctor it's just like he is the doctor here like he is manic he is intense the the one of my favorite moments in this is completely understated but the moment where he's trying to figure out what the hell is going on with Amy and he says there's an angel in his mind and he gasps and put the, puts his hands over his face is remarkable it is it is so remarkable and so beautiful in a way where it's like you're seeing this guy get really scared and he just mm-hmm. escaped from a room full of angels like that it's oh it's beautiful it's so beautiful it's so um, good and it's funny too because it's a thing where you watch this and you can tell the stuff that uh that moffat gravitated toward and what uh, what moffat realized audiences were gravitating toward um i think this is a perfect example of <laughs> Don't give the audience what they want um, <laughs> because they are wrong. Always. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's a thing where it's like, okay, you watch this episode and really the, the, the majority of, of, of season five and you can see all of all of the things that Moffat was interested in in the Doctor. And then in between series five and series six is when he found out what audiences really gravitated toward, what they couldn't shut up about, which was all the funny stuff. Mm-hmm. Because people talk about things that are funny, Moffat. That's yeah. just a thing that happens. People like, like to laugh, guys. Just, yeah. I don't know if you know that, but it's, uh, yeah. it's pretty great. Yeah, it doesn't mean you have to give them a comedy show. Mm-hmm. Um but anyway, so he turned Doctor Who into a comedy show, and and as a result, so did all of the other doctors or all the other writers of Doctor Who. But but except one, one writer was interested in the other stuff, and when he wrote his episode, he wrote this Doctor, and that yep. was Neil Gaiman. Yep, and that guy knows what he's doing. Yep, there's a reason why he wrote that Doctor. Mm-hmm. He wrote the Matt Smith, the doctor that is in this episode, not the cat in the hat doctor. Yes. Which yes. is what makes that episode so good. Yes. 
And like it's it's even the stuff where it's like I mean I I don't think I was going to mention this but why not because we're talking about it the the death of Octavian is a brilliant scene like it's a brilliant oh, yeah. brilliant scene because you can see that the doctor's getting his heart ripped out when he is talking to that angel just like let him go like you don't want to do like it's such a perfect delivery like it's so it's so confident and it's so swagger and yet he's pleading like it's doing so many different things at once it is oh it's so good it's so 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 good and like. God damn it, I love this. I just, I love this so much. Yeah. It. It's, it's such a great do- use of Doctor. It's a great use of Amy Pond. I've, I, I was actually in a Twitter conversation with Phil Sandifer the other day. We were talking about um, Amy Pond and the series, and he was like, you know what, it's really funny because Karen Gillan wasn't trying. And I was like, I don't know if she was doing that. Watching this, Karen Gillan really wasn't trying in Series 7. Um, she, <laughs> she wasn't. She is so good here. Like, she is yeah. so good here. Well, because she realized that she doesn't, she didn't have to anymore. Sure. I mean, and that's the thing. Like, that's what Stephen Moffat realized. That's what Matt Smith realized. They're like, oh, wait, we already have everyone's undying admiration. We don't have to try, and they'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, like, and like, but they gave they give her, like, it's not just Karen Gillan. You're right. It's, it is Stephen Moffat. Like, Stephen Moffat, the scene at the end is such a bizarre scene, but it works so well. And I don't know why. Like, it, it, that scene should not work at all. But it just it works because she's so perfect in that scene, um, the mm-hmm. scene and the flirting in the bed and stuff. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's so, it's so, it's so, it's so good and it's so charming and it's so complicated. Like looking at Amy all through this, you can tell that she's very conflicted about stuff. You can tell that she's wrestling with a lot of stuff on her mind. And when was Amy wrestling in series six and seven? She wasn't. Um, and that's that's a problem. Like you got to push your characters. You got to you got to get them to interesting places and that's why like that's why. and and not by forcing a divorce Ugh, oh god um <laughs> but yeah no that's that's the truth and like it, it it the thing about this is like you're i'm willing to forgive just about all of the failings of this because there are moffatisms in here there are definite moffatisms but they're so mixed in with stuff that i love that mm-hmm. i'm willing to just with, say that well this is- but that's the thing though that's the thing they're all Moffatisms. Yes. The whole thing is Moffatisms. It's just that people gravitate toward the stuff that's really easy for him to get lazy with. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and, yeah. And we and, lost all the good Moffatisms and we, mm-hmm. we were stuck with all the lazy ones. Mm-hmm. And that's the unfortunate thing because, like, I I mean, I said this before. The day that I watched Kazer Androzani, and I know I'm putting it on a pedestal for those who haven't seen it, well, watch it. Um, the, 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 or save it. <laughs> or, or save it. Save it. Um, I, I watched Kazer Androzani, and I was so satisfied by it. I was emotionally wrecked and devastated, and I was just like, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what to watch. And I put this on. I... I I was with um I was with my ex and I I put this on the TV and we just watched it and I was just lost in this story and for this to follow up Caves of Androzani and for me to enjoy this story as much as I enjoyed Caves of Androzani is probably the highest praise I can possibly give anything and that's down to the writing it's down to the fact that this is remarkably expensive as an episode um it's so expensive but it's one of those things where it's like like with Pyramids of Mars, like I just lose myself in the aesthetics of it. Um, the the cave diving, the the beaches, the the forest, the spaceship, all of those things are so wonderfully realized that I just I I just I lose myself in them. I just lose myself in it, and it's such a such an excellent story. Even even a church museum, like 
I know I, it's clearly a church. Okay, that museum is clearly a church. It still looks awesome because I've never seen it before. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's just great, and that's the thing about this this whole story is like it's just it's just it's just really really great. It's really 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 great. Um, I can't speak to that enough. Like I can't tell you how much I love this story. It's easily in the pantheon of New Who. It's easily the stuff that I find myself coming back to time and time and time again. Um, and it's really, really great. It's just a bummer that Moffat took all the wrong lessons from this, like the Moffat opening. Um, <laughs> because the Moffat opening works really, really well here. It doesn't work anywhere else um, as well as it works here. Um, but yeah, I, just, oh, I love this story. I love it to pieces so much. Yeah. So much. <sighs> oh, this was good, good stuff. All right, well... <laughs> Next week. Oh uh, man, guys, don't you hate how much we hate Doctor Who? Don't you hate that? It's the God. worst. Uh, I'm sorry we sounded like children just then God, when we were I talking hate, about uh, the Moffat era. And man, how much do I hate Stephen Moffat? How much do I hate that guy? For no reason that yeah, I can ever. form into words oh, that are uh, good enough for. Uh, the audience that I'm talking to. Yeah. Never mind that I definitely just called this story one of the best Doctor Who stories ever. No, no one's going to hear that. Like, no one's going to hear it. No one's going to listen. I, I, I love our audience. I love our audience. Three stars. <laughs> All right. Let's get the hell out of here. Let's All right. Next week, uh, speaking of things getting the hell out of here, <laughs> Earthshock. <laughs> Uh, Earthshock, uh, which is uh, a Peter Davison story, Fifth Doctor, uh, Nissa Teigen, Adric, Cybermen, um, and uh, Vampires in Venice, which is uh, our, our Toby Whithouse uh, fifth, fifth series uh, episode. Um, yeah. Both on instant. Both on instant. No excuses. No excuses. So no you guys excuses. should watch both of those things. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> watch them. Yeah. Uh, th- this is a weird pairing. I'll be honest. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre. <laughs> it's uh was not planned very well on my part <laughs> at all. Uh, but really, what 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 does go with um what does go with uh, uh uh Vampires in Venice? State of Decay. God knows, I don't want to watch State of Decay right now. So I don't whatever. know. I think a lot of things could go with Vampires <clears throat> in Venice. Sure. Well, we'll find out. We'll we'll see. It'll be like <laughs> five <it's>... doctors. <laughs> There's Venice in that. Yeah. And and there's dresses, so Pyramids of Mars probably would have gone better with it than Earthshock did. Yeah, Earthshock and uh, Time of Angels would have gone together really, 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 really well. Like, really, really <laughs> yeah. well. Space Way Marines to go, and... Master Planner. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. I'm sorry. I ruined <laughs> the show forever. Um, anyways, on the other side of the those two, we're going to do Planet of the Ood, which is the 10th Doctor Donna story. We're going to do The Smugglers, which is a first Doctor story that is essentially a prequel to Curse of the Black Spot. That's right. It's, doc- it's the Doctor and Pirates. Oh, crap. And then we're going to do Time Lash. Um, I'll just say screw Time Lash right now. Like, that is a nightmare. You're going to... Oh, man. Scott, you're going to watch that, and you're going to come up and be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> it's going to be so mad. So, Planet of the Ood will be hi- will be um, together with Amy's Choice. Um, the Smugglers <clears throat> will be with Hungry Earth Cold Blood. And Time Lash will be wonderfully balanced by Vincent and the Doctor. Um Oh, that's good. <laughs> so Ta- we have something 
Lashes. Time Lash is the first of what four six Doctor stories we have left, or something. We don't have that many six Doctor stories left. That's for yeah. Sure. I was gonna um, say when I saw six Doctor story on here, I was like, oh yeah, him. <laughs> Because we did Trial of the Time Lord, and there went half of his stories. Yeah, I'm looking at it. We have six six Doctor stories left. One is okay. One is quite good, but not a six Doctor story, and the rest are rubbish. So, something to look forward to, everyone. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. Oh, joy. Every time <laughs> we do a six Doctor story. Uh, now I just want to go listen to some Colin Baker or something. That's what I want to do. Um <laughs> Anyway, Scott, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, Twitter.com slash Scott Corelli, Twitter.com slash Scott Commentary, where I live tweet things sometimes. Uh, and then The Mind Robbers, which is uh, our other podcast where we talk about other things. If you want to hear us talk about uh, like storytelling and writing and things um, of the entertainment variety, uh, as we talk about Doctor Who, only about other things, then you should be listening to The Mind Robbers. Uh, there's also a lot more four-letter words. Or or one or two. Yeah. It's colorful. <laughs> and language. Language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's colorful language. Uh, Matt, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Gunganin. You can also find me at my alternate Twitter account, twitter.com slash Commentary, where I throw up thoughts on things I'm uh, watching or whatever. Um also, my blog, classicalgallifrey.blogspot.com. We're a little backlogged right now, but I should have a bunch of stuff coming up through the pipeline really, pipeline really soon. I'm almost to my uh, victory lap. I'm actually... Um, I have the Mind Robber that I'm doing next. Um, I have I have to release the Sunmakers on Edge of Destruction, but I have the Mind Robber coming up. The Mind Robber is actually the last regular story that I'm covering. All the last... I only have seven more, and then one, and that's one from each Doctor that I've specifically set aside so that I can end off strong, which is really nice. So... Something to look forward to, guys and everyone. Good stuff. Good stuff. And how. Woo! All right. <laughs> we'll see you next week with uh, Earthshock and Vampires in Venice. Space Bye. Marines and uh, stuff. Bye, guys. Bye.